welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And uh, this is episode 174, number 174. And uh, as always, if you have any questions or comments uh, for us, go ahead and you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the um, comments section on Podbean. Yeah, <laughs> it froze up there for a minute. Uh, haven't been getting too many that way, so that's that's why it's uh, <laughs> it doesn't get doesn't come to my mind as quickly as the other thing. So yeah, send it to my old AOL account. You know, I mean, I've had an AOL account for like forever because you know I can. I, I've got a couple other accounts too, but um, <laughs> I like the old AOL account. I like giving that address to people. They're like AOL, what's that? You know, it's really funny. So. Anyway, but that's a good uh, that's a good address to use for any questions or comments. And oh, we got all kinds of things, all kinds of things today. First of all, I don't know if you celebrated like I did, but that ugly little twisted worm, Hunter Biden, his his plea deal went up in smoke, man. <laughs> I mean, they saw what what a con. And what a what an absolute affront to the justice system that thing was, and uh, the judge blew it up. The judge blew it apart. I mean, it's nice to know that there's judges that can do that, um, you know. And so that's all funny. Um, you know, the most serious charge was his gun charge. Here's a guy who's who lies on his uh, ATF form 4473. Um, he gets a gun, thus illegally. He then, you know, flashes this thing around. And this was all during the drama when he was dating his deceased brother's widow, right like right after he died, not maybe a year and a half after he died. Re- really weird, creepy, creepy, creepy. So while he's doing these creepy things, he's flashing around a gun. She takes objection to it. He actually gets rid of it by throwing it in a dumpster next to a school. It's like, wow, that's that's pretty awesome. And for that, they were going to let him walk, put him in a diversion program. What the hell is a diversion program? Do they tell you, please don't use drugs and buy guns? Please don't throw your gun away in a dumpster next to a school? Is, is that what the diversion program is? I mean, I don't understand. I don't know what a diversion program for a felony gun charge is. But I know one thing. I do know one thing. Go to jails around the country and you'll find people in jail for felony gun charges. I don't think they were offered diversion programs. <laughs> Their diversion program was a lockup for, you know, a year or six months or a year or something like that. So, you know, there you go. I mean, two tiers of justice. It just can't happen. And then the other stuff, he was just going to, you know, I don't know, get probation or something for the tax nonsense. So, you know, that's all that's all just absolute garbage. And, um, you know, I'm glad that blew up me. You know, I don't know what's going to happen, but at least it's not going to be that miscarriage of justice. At least it's not going to be that. Speaking of another... uh, uh, somebody getting their comeuppance. Looks like the ATF is going to get burned over the uh, um, 
pistol brace nonsense that they're trying to push, you know, ban those things. I, I mean, it's so flawed. Number one, they made them legal for years. So there are scads of them out there. Number two, their plan to remediate it, which is, well, you can have these things. You just got to register it as an SBR. Well, there are states where you can't do that. You can own a pistol brace, but you cannot own an SBR. And so those people are like left out in the cold, you know, but ATF doesn't care about that. So anyway, they, they've been getting they've been getting pummeled in court over that. And it appears that uh, they're going to, you know, just take a burn on that. Um, you know, how many crimes have these things been used in? And the answer is nobody can really point out that they constitute a significant public menace. They don't. And even if they could, that doesn't, there's no constitutional thing saying a public menace can't be around, you know. Um, everything could be a public menace. Look at, you know, the, the, the theory that, well, you don't need that. If that extended to everything else, hey, there isn't a car that would be going over 65 miles an hour, you know. I mean, face it. Um, all these high-performance cars and trucks people buy would be all governed down to 65 or 70 miles an hour, whatever the, the local uh, jurisdiction allows. So there you go. Um, you know, you cannot allow them to tell you what you can have. So those things are good. Now, of course, the huge mis miscarriage of justice are these ridiculous Trump indictments, which, you know what? These are going nowhere. And even the, even you know, some middle middle of the road legal scholars are saying, man, there's serious problems with these indictments. Um, number one, you can't have, you can't indict somebody for freedom of speech. Um, now you can kick them off YouTube because YouTube are, are basically, well, we'll just say what they are. They're just a bunch of whores. YouTube are trash. They're filth, and that's the people who run it. Google and YouTube are run by whores, trash, and filth. That's what they are, gutter swine. So those people can do that because it's their platform. But you can't, you can't charge somebody with felonies for free speech. And some of these other things they've come up with are ridiculous. The, the most ridiculous thing is something that nobody's talking about. And that is, we have taken for granted the election certification process. And the fact of the matter is, it's not all ceremonial. If there is, why do we even bother to do it? Why even bother to do it? Just, you know, say, okay, whatever, whatever the networks call on election night is it. Because that's what it's turned into. So when an absolute loser like Mike Pence... You know, an a turncoat <laughs> loser like him says, "Well, you know, my, you know, you know, he had a part in the certification process. He, he did not stand up. He didn't believe. He didn't believe that that election was fair. And he's even said so in the past. He didn't say it anymore. But uh, the fact of the matter is, if you just want to rubber stamp everything." then go ahead, but there actually is a process, and when there's a question on an election, it should have been investigated, um, and then go ahead and uh, let the chips fall. Let it get 
a good bipartisan that that needed a Warren Commission style investigation and uh, instead the two-tier legal system which protects the Biden family corruption the the hush money and the the payola the bribery all of that from Burisma and the communist Chinese and all these other the, the the wife of the mayor of moscow who sent hunter a hundred million dollars or something i mean no wonder the guy can sit around and afford to finger paint <laughs> all day long i mean when you're when you're pulling in when you're pulling in uh <laughs> cash like that no wonder you can you can sit around and finger paint like a like a brain addled you know uh dependent person you know he's he's in there like he's somebody in a a mental institution which is probably where he belongs anyway so that's the that's you know kind of the big news and some of it is actually gun related the atf the capricious vicious ugly atf has taken a beating on the braces and they're going to take a beating on 80 percent receivers too you can't say a lump of metal is a gun you you can't say it unless it actually is and so uh i think they've they've uh, pretty much gotten in trouble on that one too uh but when it comes to things i mean one of the big disappointments of the last couple of years has been you know cabela is a pretty good store and it's not the only place but it's a pretty good store and uh of course in order in in the ultimate money grab they sold out to bass pro shops which i've never had a lot of luck with and i won't go into the the details but bass pro shops um uh, for me they've been a bunch of jerks but that's a, that's another story but now you go into the old cabela's at, and then for a while they were kind of running it like well they're two separate we own them both but they're two separate things and the focus was a little different you know the focus on cabela's was more shooting and hunting and bass pro shops was had a little bit of that but they were more fishing and other things now they're just uh selling you know you, you walk in there half the stores boats and and utvs and atvs um where they used to have a whole bunch of shooting and and hunting equipment they now have this cabin kitsch stuff you know little little lamps that look like they're made out of logs with the little lampshade with a moose on it and you know that and they they got one aisle now of toys absolute children's toys where they used to have shooting stuff i mean if you go in there and, and nothing in there is consistent now uh you go in there and there's some kind of powder one day some kind of powder the next day there's no routine stockage of anything and this stuff's out there now um there are a few powders they're not making now because they had some problems at the plants but um you know everything else is pretty much available and they just they just sort of you know willy-nilly stock stuff so it's really a pain in the butt to go in there and try to get anything here's here's an example of the nonsense that they do um, I went in there to get some 45 ACP brass because I'm always short because it bounces around everywhere I shoot it out of my semi-automatic Thompson <laughs> I shoot it out of 1911s and it bounces around any place and so if I shoot 10 rounds I'm always gonna lose like two of them I get somehow I get eight back or seven back so um, 
I go in there to buy some and they have a bag of 100 for $22 Starline brass. Excellent brass, excellent product. So they have two bags. So I said, oh, I'll take both of those. I said, well, I wish I had some more though. I'd like to get, like to get at least one more bag. Oh, here's another bag, Winchester. 145 ACP unprimed brass was $47. And I'm, I'm sitting there looking going, this other is $22.50. What? That's high enough, but at least that's, you know, that's less than half the price of this. So I look around and no, it's not mismarked. It's not it. I, I It's cheaper. I could go buy 100 rounds of Winchester White Box for just like 15 bucks more and have 100 loaded rounds that I can shoot. Then I'll have, you know, 100 brass when I'm, when I'm done. So I looked at that and I said, how can they, how can you sell this brass at this price it is just outrageous almost a dollar almost a dollar well no no 50 cents it's 50 cents an empty brass which is which is very expensive very expensive so and and now they've rebranded the cabela's that's near my house is now it's now a bass pro i mean there's still a few things that say cabela's but the big signs are now bass pro everything they're wandering around wearing bass pro hats and all this other stuff so it's effectively a Bass Pro. And thus, it is limited and not as good as it used to be. Another thing is uh, there's a chain here in the Midwest. I don't know if it's anywhere else, but it's called Orschlands. Kind of an old-timey, you know, farm supply, general store type of thing, you know. They sell everything from food. Like, you get good pickles and stuff there. But they sell that kind of stuff there. They sell, you know, farm implements. And I bought a trailer there. I bought mowers there. You know, stuff like that. Uh, they sell ammunition. Not a lot, but at least they have kind of what you need. And it's not bargain basement priced by any means, but at least they have it. Well, of course, Orschlands gets bought by Tractor Supply. Which tractor supply sounds like it would be like the big farmer, you know, kind of place. It's not. It's really the hobby farm, um, kind of the, um, you know, suburban type place where you would get things. It's not, it's not there. And they, every tractor supply I've ever been in has never had ammo. So that looks like one less place. So Cabela's is dead and it's now Bass Pro as bad as all that is and Orschlands is now dead and they're they're converting them to tractor supply so there you go and if that isn't bad enough you know YouTube I, I watch very little YouTube anymore um, the gun con a lot of the gun content on there is is just horrible and it's run by people who are I and I consider them quizlings I mean, they, they want to be on YouTube so bad because they think that's where their audience is always going to be that they, um, you know, they, they compromise. And so they're going to say what YouTube tells them they can say. Um, there's certain things YouTube won't let them do. So I just believe that, uh, you know, I've got very little use for them. A lot of that content, and I used to look at quite a bit of it, a lot of it was just flat inaccurate. Um, some are better than others, um, but a lot of it is inaccurate. And frankly, um, 
don't believe anything you see on YouTube. Now, some of the historical, the gun historical stuff is fine. You know, see in arsenals, the information they have is usually fine. The obviously forgotten weapons, they're pretty good. You know, that's that's good. Some of the rest of that, I, I wouldn't give you anything for. So, those guys are uh, definitely, definitely on the poo-poo list. Um, someday, the gun community, quote unquote, on YouTube, is gonna have to grow a pair and they're going to have to move to some other platform that is not on Google servers. They're going to have to do that. And they ought to do it sooner rather than later and they can choose whichever one it is. I mean, um doesn't matter to me, but choose whichever one it was. So, here we are at questions and answers and uh, got some interesting ones. Some of these we've kind of talked around a little bit before, but, uh, well, you know, there were always, it's always good to kind of uh, rethink things once in a while. So, was the World War I 1903 Springfield Rifle Pedersen device a good idea, and was it good execution? Um, I'll answer the second part of that first. I don't know about the execution. I've only seen one or two of these things, and you know wisely their owners were too smart to let me get my mitts on them so um i have held them but i've never operated one so i've never fired one uh the other the other thing is when it comes to execution it's very hard to talk about the quality of something when it's well over 100 years old i mean um yeah, a lot of them, I think a lot of them kind of don't work. But that's because the springs inside are 100 years old. They may have been assembled from two or three different devices. There's all kinds of reasons why the one in your hand might not be reliable. And it might not be representative of what was made in 1918 and 1919. And, and you know, the whole thing, the Pedersen device was quickly just a semi-automatic conversion unit for a... 32 caliber pistol round to fire out of the Springfield. Um, they used to sell these chamber adapters for the Springfields and other other rifles, um, where you could shoot 32 ACP automatic Colt pistol cartridges out of them, because the uh, bore diameter is the same. Yeah, and they're pretty they're pretty anemic, but it was kind of a low cost thing that you could do. The <laughs> the funny part of that is 32 ACP ammo is now more expensive than probably 30 hot six. So that's really not much of, if any, of an economy. But this was the same sort of, um, same sort of deal. It looked a lot like, in some ways, a modern AR conversion kit. Had a uh, chamber that kind of looks like a a 30 hot six round, um, and in that would be fed a uh, 30 caliber pistol round and you know had a semi-automatic it, it had some extra parts inside the Springfield to make this thing work you know it was okay you know I mean it, it had like a uh, 40 round magazine which is pretty cool and the thought was hey you could convert very quickly in the field your 30 out 6 1903 into this wonder weapon where that took 40 shot magazines and and would work um, I think it was actually it's an idea that was quickly obsolete because of submachine guns. And face it, you know, there were Thompson submachine guns were getting ready to ship 
to Europe. You know, they and they really weren't ready to go until just when the war ended. If the war had gone another year, uh, we're all of a sudden talking about Thompson's being in the trenches, which would have, you know, overshadowed the idea of the Pedersen device. But the Pedersen device was, hey, I can convert my my full power battle rifle that holds five cartridges into a lesser weapon that holds 40 cartridges but would be good at short range and I can do it by substituting a bolt and you know putting this device in so uh, it's a it, it was a it was not a bad idea it was never designed to be like the wonder weapon of the ages um, it really was something that I think was kind of designed of hey we need something that we can get into the field in the next year that's going to make a difference and I think that's really what it was in the long term it was never going to work as as something enduring because submachine guns really um, took its place and and even nine millimeter which was kind of the lower power submachine gun cartridge um, was definitely going to was definitely better than this 30 caliber um, Pedersen device cartridge so um, it wasn't a bad idea. Um, it would have, if it, it probably would have saved lives. Uh, the the big fears you always hear as well, bolts. Somebody would have taken their bolt out, put the Pedersen device in their in their uh, rifle, and the bolt would have gotten lost, you know, and all that. And maybe maybe so, but the other thing is the amount of the devices they had. When you look at the size of the AEF, the American Expeditionary Force. Uh, you're not going to have whole units equipped with these things. You're going to have a couple guys here and there, maybe two guys per squad. So it was never going to be for everybody. It was just kind of going to be for, I think they wanted 165,000 of these things at one point. And, you know, we had 4 million men in the AEF. So that'll tell you something. Now, those all weren't first line combat guys, and that's who would have gotten these devices, but it's still... Um, there would have been a lot of guys on the front line without it. So there you go. Here's something that's almost related. Is 32 ACP really too small for defense? And the answer for that is yes. <laughs> and the obvious reason that I would that I have some hesitation is because it's been so effective over time. I mean, there have been a lot of people who've used. 32 ACP successfully. Does that make it an optimal cartridge? No. But I would also say, and I know they've done ballistic tests, which they think prove differently and everything, but when you're talking with very small pocket pistols and vest pocket pistols and things, the difference between 32 and 380 is really going to be very difficult to tell on a target. There's going to be after a shooting like that somebody's not going to go whoo good thing i had that 380 instead of the 32 they're just not going to do it uh there's just not that much difference between them uh, on paper there is but in practicality there is not so it's not too small but there are a lot of really good choices now um you know i think the kind of people who would use it are people who already have one it's you know, um, and, and they've made a few new ones, but there are everything from Walther's to Colt's to all kinds of other things that are out there in 32 ACP, which are, are good, reliable guns, and it's better than no gun. So 
Uh, is it my first choice? No. Is it a bad choice? Not really. Is it an optimal choice? No. So there you go. Now here's one I know nothing about, but I did see some footage. Is the new Automag in 44 Automag caliber a reliable gun? And the answer to that is I, I think that, and I don't know if there are any Automag fans out there anymore. There used to be, but I don't know if there are anymore. Um, in the six, uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, the 44 Automag came out, looked kind of like a big Ruger semi-automatic pistol. Um, it had a locking bolt and all those other things. And it was for a special cartridge, 44 Automag. They, they also had a 357 Automag, which was the same cartridge, just nicked down to 357. Um, very futuristic looking for the time. Uh, very cool because they were stainless steel, which was futuristic at the time. Um, problem is they ran like they were expensive and they ran like crap part of the reason they ran like crap was because they had the ammunition made in Mexico um, quality control wasn't very good and so that was a problem and I'm not sure that the cartridges had been ballistically developed enough to um, to really be a good match I mean a lot of times you got to develop a cartridge and a gun at the same time so that you can make sure that they they all match and they don't they don't have problems but these had problems uh, the next thing was it was just it just had reliability problems um, probably stemming from the magazines also stemming from you know it was a it was a design and it, and it was tested but it went into production it was never a military design that got a lot of testing it was never a police design and it was not done by a big company It was done by kind of one guy who who had this vision and can't blame him can't blame him it turned out a cool gun but it's not the kind of gun you would stake your life on it is a kind of gun you could go hunting with um, you know something like that and it's just a cool gun to have and, and, and use it looks a little dated now and I know there's another company now that has revived these and they make them and they cost a lot. They cost. I mean, I think they're like uh, nearly $4,000. So uh, for nearly $4,000, you're basically getting the same deal. Um, they run a, apparently a little better than the originals, but it's not like it, it's perfect. So there, there you are. Um, if you really want a 44 caliber semi-automatic gun, go get a Desert Eagle of any vintage and they will run fine. They run good. They run fine. You just got to use the right ammo. But that's the same thing you got to do with these auto mags. I don't know they make a 357 auto mag anymore. I don't know if they, when the company revived, they brought that caliber back too. But, you know, again, how, how much more? You know, how much more? Um... It's it's like I kind of laugh when they have the uh, the 429 Desert Eagle, which is a kind of a redo of the old 440 Corbon, which was the 50 A and E neck down to 44. I don't know if any target you shoot is going to know the difference between that and a 44 Magnum. You know, I I just don't know. Um, I would say not. And 44 Magnum ammunition that's Desert Eagle compatible is much much easier to find and probably much more affordable. So. I would, uh, 
you know, sometimes you kind of go just with the simplest answer. You want a, sem a powerful semi-automatic. You go with the Desert Eagle. They've been around forever. Um, they got an excellent reputation. Um, they work really well and, and do that. So that's what I would do. I would only do this auto mag if I had just silly money to waste and I wanted something that nobody else had. You, then you can go for it, but prepare to be embarrassed when you're showing it off at the range and it, and it doesn't work very well. Okay, here's the next one. Please clarify your remarks on why the M1 Garand is superior to the M1941 Johnson. Yeah, I thought I was pretty clear last time, but I realize I kind of ramble. So I'm just going to say it real, real quick. The the fun uh, design and and all this other stuff aside, the early semi-automatic rifles that used stripper clips to load a fixed magazine were not that much faster than the bolt guns they replaced. Okay, by the time you you do all that, the packet end-block loading of the M1 rifle was superior because you just you you basically did one motion you had the thing in your hand you put it in the bolt goes forward and you've got eight shots you reach in your your pouch pull out another one when it's a put it in and go uh, when you're loading the other, whether it's a Johnson or an SVT-40 or the uh, German G-41, G-43 or whatever, you know, you're using an 1890s good idea, the stripper clip. And it was a good idea in the 1890s. It was a really good idea. By World War II, well, still a, an okay idea. But for semi-automatics, it was a bad idea. Detachable magazines or the end-block packet loading of the M1 was superior. And so I, I would say that um, if you had a Johnson and you had an M1 and you had, now Johnson would hold 10 rounds, but you had to load it twice with two stripper clips. The M1 would hold eight. If you had about 80 rounds, if you had 80 rounds per gun, which one would would be able to shoot have the faster higher rate of fire and the answer is the m1 probably i'm just going to go out on a limb and say i bet it's almost twice as fast that you could let's say it takes three minutes to shoot 80 rounds i bet with the johnson it would take five to six minutes that's just my guess just basically looking at the mechanical things it takes to load so when you're doing that and and i base that on I've never done a direct head-to-head -head comparison, but I have loaded SVT, uh, Hakim, AG42B, Rashid, SKS. I have loaded those. Um, also Lee Enfield because of the two the two things. And face it, none of them are are even close to the kind of speed you get with an M1 and an N-block clip. So the N-block clip really. With all the other attrib positive attributes of the M1 rifle, the icing on the cake was the end block loading. And in fact, I think they actually did a uh, test of an M1 against an M14, and they found the M14 wasn't that 
was not significantly faster than the M1. Um, now you only have to you get 20 shots when you load it, but you know pulling out the clip, rocking it in, working the bolt, um, that, and then taking it out again when it's empty, putting it in your back in your pouch, pulling out another one. Um, there was a lot of beauty to the M1, which just when you put it in, the bolt automatically goes forward. And when they're empty, the clips ping out and you don't have to worry about them. So you just get another one. There's a lot of beauty in that system that, uh, that has been overlooked. There's a lot of beauty in that system. So um, definitely that is why I believe the, the M1 rifle was superior to the M1941 Johnson. Now, when it came to if they're both loaded and you're firing, I don't think it matters. I don't think either of them had a significant advantage over the other one. So why would you choose the Johnson if it's got this really what is an inferior loading system? So there you go. That's that's what I would uh, say with that. Um, if there had been a disaster and the M1 rifle is a, it's like the Riesing submachine gun. It's completely unreliable. Nobody wants to use it. Would the Johnson had been some kind of substitute or contender? Uh, maybe on a limited basis, if it proved itself. But we probably would have wound up sticking with the uh, Springfield and, you know, doing more machine guns. You know, probably would have doubled or tripled the number of BARs in a squad or something. So we'll see. Um, that those are my those are my thoughts on the Johnson and why it wasn't there. And it's it's based on the experience I have with the other rifles of that era um fn 49s another one um you know they're brilliant rifles they're brilliant i think the fn 49 is I, th th that's absolutely a, a wonderful marvelous rifle but again they they're relying on this 1890s good idea to get cartridges into that fixed magazine so that's it here is another one and this is an interesting question what was the 22 spitfire the 22 spitfire was a good idea that was way too late in 1963 melvin johnson the same guy who did the johnson rifle um, basically said i can take an m1 carbine i can neck that cartridge down to 22 and it would be a 5.7 by 33, I think, 32 or 33. And, you know, that's going to basically kind of be the same kind of ballistics that, you know, at close range anyway, that they're getting out of these 5.56 five, or 223 rifles. And, hey, it's a lot cheaper. All you have to do is replace a barrel on the M1 carbines, which we own scads of in military stores. So there, there we go. Uh, it was a brilliant idea, just way too late. By 1963, the AR-15 was well down the road of development, and there were just ex it was an excellent rifle. Nobody was interested in going back to a 1940 design carbine that we weren't making anymore, that we would have to invest more money into and modify. The interesting part is it's a better round, I think, than the... Uh, FN 5.7 by 28 so you know it was ahead of its time that way 
And as a PDW round, it was kind of interesting, but it was never going to go anywhere. They did some commercial things for it. Um, there, You can still see them around, and you can still, on a custom basis, get the dies. My, uh, my gut feeling is, is that uh, when the other thing that killed it off was uh, right around that early 60s time frame, there was a lot of surplus 30 cal um, M1 carbine ammo out there. So why would you for a, and even if it's a big advantage, even if it's a big step forward, the ammunition it costs you next to nothing, um, is it worth switching away from that? And the, and the answer was, was no. The economics just didn't support it. So 22 Spitfire, interesting, cool idea. Uh, never went anywhere. Um, you know, kind of like it's a lot like you know five five six snuffed out you know two twenty two remington two twenty two remington magnum and and some of these other all those earlier you know twenty two hornet and some of these other ones not because those other cartridges were bad at all but just because the market domination of five five six it's everywhere and all of a sudden it's inexpensive so you know a lot of times you're not going to shoot something that's three times as more expensive or that you can't or it's a trouble getting brass for or there's not much loading data for a lot of those things contribute to the unpopularity of a cartridge so and that's it okay another interesting question this is kind of a, a prejudiced question really if French weapons in World War one were so bad why didn't they lose the war almost immediately? Uh, I think French weapons were... It's always a difficult thing because French weapons are always so different. But the, the, you, you, have to, you do have to say that if you put a Lebel next to a Gewehr 98, that the Gewehr 98 is the superior rifle. If you put a Luger next to a French Ordnance Revolver or a 32 caliber Ruby Automatic, which the French had bought from Spain, the Luger is a superior weapon. Uh, you would have to say that the maximum, mac, not maximum, maxim guns that the um, Germans used were superior to the Hotchkiss guns. Yeah, you know, the ones that took the little tray. You had a tray, kind of this tray of cartridges. It was, it was like a belt that, that just didn't flex. And it had like 30 cartridges. You stuck it in the side of one, of one side of the um, machine gun, and it just kind of mechanically worked its way through and then was spat out the other side. Um, you, you'd have to say the German machine guns were superior to that. Um, later in the war, the German submachine guns had no counterpart so why why didn't they why didn't they just lose immediately if they're using label rifles and they're using berthier rifles which have the little the three round giz you know three round packet and block clip really and and i would say that the um the reason is because although individually head to head the the german weapons were superior the superiority did not count for much when you're arming thousands of men, they're opposing each other. The firepower each side could put up was was tremendous. 
So, and I would also say that, especially with the Berthier, uh, yeah, you got to reload it every three rounds, but those clips just drop right in. Uh, not a bad deal. And of course, when they're empty, they just drop out the bottom because there was a hole in the bottom. Not maybe the best idea in a muddy situation, but you know, very little mud is going to be able to get up through that hole. Now, I know people theoretically argue, oh, what a terrible, terrible thing and all that. But theoretically, you know, that's one deal. But practically, very little mud is going to be able to get up through that hole and jam anything up inside. You, you can quickly just push it out with the clip. So it's not that big of a deal. And the later models, which came on towards the end of the war that had the five-shot packet, they actually had a little door at the bottom that you could open and close. I guess you could just keep it open and when you're in the heat of battle and then kind of close it so that mud wouldn't get in there the rest of the time so anyway um the, the 32 rubies were reliable enough um they were reliable enough i mean the standard of manufacture was not what you would expect from a european handgun but it was good enough and they were good enough so that after the end of the war um they sold those to uh, Finland. They sold those pistols to Finland because Finland was a poor, sparsely populated country. Couldn't afford a whole lot. So, hey, you know, having something is better than having nothing. So they, they bought those, you know, and they were still serviceable. I mean, yeah, gradually they were all gone. But, but you know, it was something that you could get cheap now and use. So, you know, in... in if you had to choose, hey, what which rifle would you rather use? Um, I think you'd probably choose the Gewehr 98. You know, but the, the tube loading label, you know, you can always kind of top off that tubular magazine. Not a bad idea. Not not too bad. Um, but anyway, it's it, it shows you that during the development of some of these rifles you know, where they would spend years trying to develop the ultimate rifle, you know, especially from about, you know, 1885 to the beginning of the war. Um, a lot of that was wasted effort, really wasted effort, or it was just on the wrong road, like we were talking about the, uh, the P-13, the British P-13, which was designed for their South African war, and it turned out that that was not going to work as well as the rifle it was supposed to replace in the muddy short-range European wars. So uh, a lot of that, a lot of the uh, effort they put into rifle design, I don't want to say it was wasted, but I'm just thinking that, you know, maybe they were overthinking some of that. All right. What is the reason that sniper rifles in World War II had such low-powered optics? Weren't higher power optics available? Um, we're talking World War Two, so we're, we're we were talking about World War One a few minutes ago. So now we're we're twenty years ahead, and the answer is scopes. Outside of like target scopes and a few things, high powered optics really weren't around. You know, I think everything in World War Two, with the exception of maybe you know the unertal scopes that were on USMC snipers and and things like there are a few cases like that, but most of them were like 3.5 power right around there four power maybe for some of the german ones i think the u.s ones were like 
2.2 or 2.5 power. Not really very, not really very good uh, compared to nowadays. And but I don't think that there were a lot of higher power alternatives. I also think that, given the nature of the combat, you know they weren't doing these long shots. They were, they were shooting. If they were shooting 400 yards on a man-sized target, I think that was probably a pretty long shot. So, you know, it wasn't like it is now. Like it is now, I mean, first of all, we don't even call half our snipers sniper. I should say 90% of our snipers aren't even called snipers anymore. We call them designated marksmen. Um, why we don't call them snipers, I don't know. Uh, if it were up to me, uh, I mean, we only call the very high-end tier one special operations guys. We really only kind of call them snipers. Um, or, and also the guys who are in uh, very, very elite units, you know, the regular Navy SEALs and the uh, uh, Army Special Forces groups and such things. Probably Ranger Battalion, you know, Ranger Battalions. So um, anyway, I would call the highest end guys, you know, the the CAG guys, quote, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, those guys. I would call those guys Sniper 1s. Sniper number one, you know, Sniper First Class, Sniper 1. The guys in the regular SEAL teams and Special Forces groups and Ranger Battalions, I'd call them Sniper 2s because they're probably not as, as well-trained or as proficient. You know, they're not hitting things at 2,500 yards or whatever. So then I would uh, go down to like regular infantry, the guys we call DMRs, designated marksmen. We don't call them DMRs, we call them the DMs, I guess, designated marksmen. Uh, I would call them sniper threes, and they, you know the difference between um, a sniper three and a sniper two would be training, the type of training you get at a in, in the special forces uh, training courses and you know beyond that is beyond that and uh that's what i would do i'd have sniper one two and three you know and that to me would would immediately tell me who who i have there and what their uh um proficiency level is you know what can i count on doing i can count on this guy i can count on this sniper three to hit things out 400 500 yards um i can count on the sniper two to do a headshot at 500 yards and i can count on the sniper one to you know do things even farther beyond that so that's what i would do but the um the optics the optics are very poor um i i find that the soviet um scopes are actually the best ones in world war ii now i'm sure that some of the german it's hard to find the german ones in really good condition that's and that's probably a um a reason but the um you know the the Soviet scopes were actually pretty good, about 3.5 power, good field of view. You know, easy to see reticle. Uh, the U.S. scopes, the uh, what is it, M71 and M82, M81, M82. I find those to be very difficult to use. I don't like them. The M84, which actually came at the end, more the at the after the end of the war, actually. Uh, I find that to be the best one of that period for the U.S. ones. Uh, you know, and, and other countries, you know, again, they, um, most of the stuff you see, uh, through the 1960s is really 
less than five five power. I mean, the SVD SVD scope, which came on the uh, SVD sniper rifle, that was a four power scope. Um, pretty primitive by today's standards. Uh, towards the uh, you know kind of the late 1960s, then you started getting you know the the more powerful scopes that were used in Vietnam and places like that. Um, you know the U.S. scopes that were on the uh, M40 uh, A1. Is it A1? Was it, or was it just the M40 then? But um, yeah, the ART scopes, which is like a three to nine. You know, you, you started getting more power. And even those are tinker toys compared to now. Um, the explosion just happened right around the year 2000, and all of a sudden. Uh, the scope technology took leaps and bounds ahead so um, really great technology became very affordable and very usable but uh, yeah World War II sniper rifles you kind of look at those and go hmm I'm not really sure about this <laughs> but they they were perfectly suited for the types of combat that was in both Europe and the Pacific you know they were they were perfectly suited for that um, nowadays we'd call them you know, DMRs and not sniper rifles, but that's the way it goes. way it is. Okay, was the Chauche light machine gun as bad as it rep as its reputation indicates? Uh, that's the CSRG 1915 and 8mm Lebel. Um, yeah, there was some weirdness that went on when the AEF started coming to... When the ATF started arriving in France, they were kind of going through these um, infantry schools that were held by the, the British and the French to kind of help help the Americans, hey, kind of acclimate them to, hey, this is what's going on in trench warfare. And when that happened, some, somehow we got equipped with Chauches, and we didn't have enough heavy machine guns, so we got the Hotchkiss. Um, sometimes we got other things. Um, you know, it was, it was kind of hodgepodgey uh, with the automatic weapons for a while. And uh, for, for no good reason, we did not get the good Lewis gun, which was actually the best, probably the best of the lot. But yeah, the Chauche has a horrid, you cannot judge it by the examples now. It goes back to what I was saying about the Pedersen device. Things that are 100 years old and surviving specimens, you, you do not know if they represent the craftsmanship and the you know quality of manufacture that was back then you know it's 100 years old and people have been shooting it and people have been replacing parts on it and and all kinds of stuff so you don't know if it's really the same gun i go back to the contemporary writing where it was uniformly despised so i assume that that is the frontline troops who you know, knew a good weapon when they saw it because nobody despised the 1911 pistol. Nobody despised uh, really the uh, 1917 Enfield or 1903 Springfield, but the Chauche was looked upon as junky. So I'd have to say is it probably does have a very bad reputation. Again, it lived on after the war. Uh, Greece and Finland bought them from the French. And I think they even manufactured them for a short time after the war, uh, simply because it existed. And, you know, if you're in Finland or Greece, in a peacetime army, 
that's not fighting in trench warfare, it, it was probably, at least for a time, usable. So um, it probably wasn't that bad. Plus, you know, it was kind of the first thing. It was a lot of people call it a light machine gun. I, I think it's more of an automatic rifle, but, you know, so it's kind of more like a BAR than it is a light machine gun, which is what a Lewis gun would be. So, um, you know, it was the first one. It, it, it had some utility, but it was clearly not something <laughs> that you would want them to hand to you and say, here's your weapon. You, It's not something you want. So there you go. Uh, which is the best submachine gun caliber? 45 ACP or 9mm? Um, everybody will say 9mm. What I will say is it depends on what caliber your handgun is because you probably want ammo commonality so the best one for you if you're carrying 1911s you probably want Thompson's and M3 grease guns if you're carrying Luger's and Walther P38's you probably want 9mm Schmeiser you know you want a you want a Schmeiser in 9mm Parabellum uh, if you're British you want a night you're carrying a 9mm you know Inglis Browning High Power, you probably want a 9mm Sten gun. You know, there you go. So it's it's really what you got. But I think from a design perspective, without that caveat or that restriction, I think 9mm makes more compact and lighter uh, weapons. So that's why it's really been the one of choice. It's not, 45 isn't bad, but you do have, you do pay a a weight penalty with with it uh, getting the the larger bullet gives you a weight penalty in both ammunition and usually the uh, size of magazines and mechanism of the guns so I would have to say that you know just if you're going from Jump Street you're gonna want a nine millimeter um, if you're the United States in 1941 you want 45 ACP that that's probably the best way to to put that well, that is it for this edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And again, if you have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com or put them in the comments section on Podbean. And this is episode number 174. And uh, as always, we will wait for next time. And until then, this is Old School Guns, out.